You're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Dr. Louis-Jean Valencia-Garcia and Sean Mulcahy from the Victorian Pride Lobby. 3CR While Dr. Louis-Jean Valencia-Garcia is an Assistant Professor of Digital History at Texas State University, he's a Senior Fellow and Head of the History Research Unit for the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right. And Louis begins our interview by describing Texas's new repressive abortion law. Where to start? Uh, the best way I like to think a little bit about this right now is people are trying to figure it out as it's happening. It's a completely new type of law in which essentially what it does is it gives any person the right to sue anybody else if they've had anything to do with an abortion. Um, that is to say, uh, providing services to uh, help a person have access to health care uh, after six weeks, roughly, of pregnancy. And so, basically, if you're living in Minnesota and you know of somebody who is an Uber driver in Texas who gave somebody a ride to um, an abortion clinic, uh, they would be potentially liable for up to $10,000. People are calling it a bounty hunter law, and it does indeed seem to be that way, doesn't it? I think that's really the only way to think about it. It's uh, basically it's extrajudiciary, so it doesn't exist within the uh, normal, we'll say, juridic cycle. It's not like the people are being arrested. It's uh, entirely sort of a civil law that is being used to give people the right to sue anybody who is helping a woman have access to uh, reproductive health. How has the U.S. Supreme Court responded? Essentially what we have right now is the U.S. Supreme Court not responding. Um, so five of, the four, uh, five of the nine justices have said that they're basically just going to let it go through the normal sort of channel, so it has to... Uh, go into law then it has to be there has to be some sort of case there could be retrials there can be appeals this sort of thing until it potentially gets to the supreme court but the supreme court's basically denied um sort of addressing the issue until it's sort of put in their laps which could take years even are we seeing a scenario where roe versus wade is under threat I think one way that I am thinking about this, it's that essentially what's happening is a threat against people having bodily autonomy. Uh, and I think this is happening particularly in Texas, just as much for women um, as it's happening also for trans people, for example. There's this sort of attempt by the radical right to really uh, clamp down on uh, women and queer people having bodily autonomy. Uh, that is to say, to do what they want with their bodies. Uh, this has been happening, particularly in Texas recently as well, with uh, trans youth 
uh, where they've made attempts to say that it is illegal for people to give any sort of health services to uh, people who are underage um, that would help them better uh, have treatment for sort of gender dysphoria and this sort of thing as well. So it's really, it is an effort right now. What we're seeing in the news is an effort against women particularly, which has been a decades long sort of attack, but this is also part and parcel of sort of an attempt that's been going on more generally on the right to really oppress people for their gender and sexuality. Yes, indeed. It's the perfect cocktail mix for the far right, isn't it? With a sympathetic Supreme Court and an emboldened Republican Party since Donald Trump left office. I mean, his his influence over American society is still enormous, isn't it? It is. It really is. And I think that um, oftentimes we sort of think that, well, Trump's often his uh, Florida beach resort uh, palace, but he is actively still engaging with his constituents. And there are a large number of people who feel more emboldened and more empowered to do this sort of just unthinkable thing that uh, previously hadn't even been attempted. And I think that what we're going to see is this is going to be one of the major issues coming up in the midterm elections in the United States in a couple of years. But it's going to also affect people nationwide. Uh, what's happening in Texas right now really is just an, a, first, a first attempt by a right-wing state, but I can easily imagine other right-wing states doing this as well. Absolutely, and lots of states seem to be following Texas's lead on, on voter suppression. What can you tell us about voter suppression law in Texas? Voter suppression law in Texas right now is really, uh, it's been enacted. Essentially, what we're seeing is uh, laws that are going to restrict people from having access to early voting or people even being able to give uh, people without uh, vehicles a ride to a voter station, for example. And this is going to be just astronomically um, uh, important in the coming years as it is primarily uh targeting people of color and also districts that are more heavily populated uh, that are in urban centers, which tend to vote more for Democrats. One way I like to think about Texas is oftentimes it's portrayed in the media as being very conservative, but really what uh, Texas suffers from is a uh, really bad case of gerrymandering. If we were to look at the numbers, most often if we were just to go by population uh, and who votes for whom, we would see that actually Democrats have a very strong uh, lead in a lot of Texas um, elections. And one of the challenges there is that representation really is not matching what is the voter population in Texas. And these laws are really meant to try to really solidify uh, what essentially is gerrymandering and trying to cheat the system. It seems like the Republican Party, ever since the big lie has just got worse and worse, has become even more anti-democracy. What are your thoughts on that? I think that one way that I'm still um, seeing this, and I think I mentioned this last time, is that I see the what the radical right and what I consider the Republican Party is radical right, uh, 
is trying to do is a very simply anti-democratic, anti-pluralistic program that is fascistic. And it seems a little bit sort of over the top to be saying that after Trump's been already out of the White House for some time now. But I think what we're seeing is sort of this acceptance of just what uh, previously would have been completely unthinkable in a democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. From an outsider's perspective overseas, it looks like the Republican Party is getting worse. It looks like they're getting more anti-democratic and it looks like they're getting increasingly more fascist. And, uh, you know, some of your politicians over there in the Republican Party really seem to be trying to incite more violence since the insurrection. Yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, we see this particularly with some of the changes in gun laws texas again which is sort of a hotbed of a lot of this it's uh now legal for somebody to have open carry which essentially means that a person can have a gun that they don't even have to have any sort of permit to have in virtually any public space um say if you're walking down the street or in a public plaza or what have you it's um as a few friends of mine who actually study the uh, sort of the West uh, in the 1800s, this wasn't even the norm. There were rules in town about like how you're supposed to behave as a good citizen. And I think that's one of the things that we're starting to see here is just a slide into what is a completely militarized uh, society that is really allowing the Republican Party to arm its supporters and feel empowered to go after anybody who doesn't uh, think the way that they do. What are your thoughts on the congressional investigation into January 6th, into the insurrection? I mean, the way the Republican Party is responding, it kind of looks like they're admitting that they were enabling the insurrection, just their threats to telecommunications companies, for example, and telling them that, you know, if they hand over records, they'll be shut down if the Republicans ever regain power federally. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think what we're seeing with at least the sort of committee investigation is that it is very much so pro forma in that it doesn't have any bite. Uh, There's no sort of repercussions that can really come out of it as long as um, it's only coming from the Congress and not both a sort of joint effort by the Congress and the Senate. And so what we're going to end up with is, maybe more information about what happened and how it was organized. But I think what the Republican Party is trying to do is really trying to not just hide sort of what happened, but like you said, it's openly admitting this is what's happened and we don't really care if it's out in the open. There is really hard, there is almost no way to deny what had happened. And I think that's what the Republican Party has started to accept is they're not going to try to back down from it. It's perpetuating the big lie. And I think what my fear is, it's ultimately going to have two two worlds where you have people who are living in sort of a fact-based reality and people who are not. It's uh, an alternate history 
of what um, really happened on um, the 6th of January. What are your thoughts on how the Biden administration is traveling? I learned the other day they've done some wonderful things like wiping college debt for students with disabilities. Yes. So I think those types of efforts are um, needed, uh, but I think that it needs to go even further. So one of the things that they have done, uh, the Biden administration uh, had done is uh, expanded sort of until next year. What is this um, uh, payment for anybody who has any student loans? So essentially the government is making payments for people who have student debt. And there's a big effort, particularly from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both senators, to wipe out all the debt for students. And this is meant to be sort of a big boost for the economy. It gives more sort of uh, freedom to really do things with extra money that I think that a lot of people who are millennials and uh, Gen Zers in particular are not able to sort of have the same sort of stability as previous generations have had. And so this, these sort of efforts, uh, while in most developed countries are pretty standard, uh, the United States, uh, younger people in the United States in particular have been suffering for quite some time because of just the enormous amount of debt that they have starting off their lives. You're listening to an interview with Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia from Texas State University on 3CRs in your face. What are your thoughts on the withdrawal from Afghanistan? I mean, Biden honored his promise, but also it looks like Donald Trump set it up when he was in office so that things would go quite badly when the withdrawal did happen. And it was very hard for Biden to undo that. I think that's absolutely correct. And I would add on to that is any time we've ever seen sort of a colonial oppressor occupying a territory, we've rarely seen the removal of the colonial oppressor uh, leave smoothly. It doesn't happen. Um, Didn't happen in Vietnam. Uh, Rarely happens anywhere. We've seen this in the history of uh, the Middle East for generations now, right? And I think that anything that was going to happen was going to be messy. Uh, But the Trump administration really set it up where there was not uh, enough of a runway to really get any sort of efforts together to remove people in time and to help people evacuate who had been um, supporting the United States as translators and service, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the things is here, it's um, if you looked at some of the videos that uh, from just this past summer, Trump was lauding the, the idea that this is going to happen, that troops are going to be pulled out. And now there's uh, been a very concerted effort by the Republican Party to remove uh, any sort of reference to this being related to Trump's initial efforts in the first place. And while I I obviously uh, don't agree with Biden on a lot of things, um, I do think that given the circumstances, we historically can only see sort of this uh, deoccupation by any sort of colonial oppressor, which... I think that we can say the United States being in Afghanistan for 20 years counts, right? Uh, I think that this is 
part and parcel of what you're going to see in, in is violence. And that's really the fault of 20 years of mismanagement and horror. Absolutely. And of course, just freeing up, you know, $300 million a day uh, for the US economy to spend on other things is going to be enormously helpful as Biden tries to rebuild the economy. Yes, absolutely. And I think that um, what we see is that the United States spends by far um, too much money on military. Uh, And if you look at sort of the numbers, I think I've seen uh, numbers quoted as much as like if we used 5% of the military spending uh, on education in the United States, we could actually have most education paid for. So we're talking about massive amounts of money here. And I think that ultimately the United States needs to reevaluate its priorities and focus more uh, on the problems that it has at home rather than trying to exert its weight uh, elsewhere in the world. Speaking on issues closer to home, what can you tell us about the coronavirus surge in Texas? Oh, it's uh, it's a little bit of a disaster right now. I I think one of the tragedies of it is that so many people have just sort of accepted that they're going to get COVID, that they've just stopped caring. And I think really that sort of apathy is at the heart of what a lot of the surge is right now. It's people accepting that they just don't care enough for each other to protect each other. And it's also compounded by people being anti-vaxxers and this and that. But if you walk into a restaurant um, or a cafe in the United, uh, in Texas in particular right now, people are not wearing masks. Uh, I'm teaching classes where uh, this uh, semester we're in per, uh, in person, and students, I, I would say at least um, a little over a tenth of of the students in the class are refusing to wear masks, um, despite people saying that they have elderly family members or kids who can't get vaccinated yet, or that they're they have people that are in their lives that are immunocompromised. It just seems to be a very uh, simple lack of empathy for. Uh, other people. It's almost as though the social contract is started to fray at its seams. I know that sounds dire, but I think that's kind of what we're dealing with in some levels. To what extent is Texas Governor Abbott enabling the spread of the pandemic by kind of, you know, encouraging these wacky views around masks? Well, I think that the governor essentially has said that no state-run institution can mandate vaccines or masks. And uh, despite the fact that he himself is vaccinated, despite the fact that he has gotten COVID himself, despite the fact that he had access to really good health care to give him sort of uh, top-of-the-line access for treating COVID-19, He's still not making any sort of efforts to uh, alleviate this. And I think it's because he believes that his base very much so doesn't believe in the virus or they think that it's sort of a lost cause and they're tired of wearing masks and having to do all these things that we necessarily have to do to keep people safe. Why do you think the MAGA base is so anti-vaccine? 
surely they must get the science that, you know, it enables them to have a level of freedom and not make other people sick. I mean, it just seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that they would endanger other people like that? I, I've i honestly been baffled by this myself, and the only thing that I can come up with is three things. One, uh, there's such a poor education of uh, middle school biology. Uh, people don't understand how exponents work, and uh, they don't understand history and the ways that we have dealt with uh, any sort of outbreak in the past. And I think that those three things right there are actually part part of the problem that we're seeing is people are not educated uh, in a way that lets them know how to uh, identify which authorities to trust. They think that they can look on the internet and just find some random website or trust uh, sort of a talking head on Fox News. And I really think like all of these things are part of the problem. It's a lack of education at the most basic level, but also it's tied to sort of this uh, radical uh, Christianity that has really sort of taken um, hold here where there's this belief that God will somehow uh, take care of everything. And it's sort of just living in a a world where in some way everything is left up to the winds. You are a doctor of fascism. Uh, You're a fascism history expert. Uh, What are your thoughts and observations about how the far right's vigilante groups are operating in America? Uh, I'm thinking of the Proud Boys and other groups. Uh, Right now they are not just active, they are recruiting and growing, and they are finding new ways of reaching their audiences. And I think that one of the problems is that a lot of this right-wing uh, rhetoric is really coming from sort of not just uh, fascist groups, but it's also spreading to mainstream media or uh, conservative media at the very least that was uh, previously not as right-wing. So take, for example... On Fox News, oftentimes you're hearing all summer, you've uh, you've heard things about critical race theory being sort of the boogeyman, when in reality, critical race theory is sort of a way of understanding race, race and the history of race and racism that is not really controversial within academia. And it's one way that lawyers think about sort of these issues that are systemic. And I think that one of the things that this fear of critical race theory is really coming from is from right-wing, far right-wing fascistic groups that are speaking about what they call white genocide, speaking about these sort of uh, ways of understanding that are just uh, anti-pluralistic, anti-democratic. And it's become very much so part of a normal standard right uh, right wing perspective and not just sort of the fringe right, which it previously was. You must have great concerns if the Republican Party ever regains control of the White House or indeed Congress, that they will do whatever they can to ensure that democracy is dead in America. When you put it that way, it definitely sounds, uh, it sounds dire. And I, Honestly, I think that every time we talk, I bring up the word dire, but it does feel that way still. 
And I think that what the Republican Party is doing right now is really trying to hold on to whatever levers of power that it has in order to move itself to this imagined past. And that imagined past is somewhere between Jim Crow South and uh, before the Civil Rights Movement. And it's really this attempt to backtrack the United States into what is uh, not just a right-wing country or conservative country or a religious Christian country, but it's really trying to make it into this white Christian nationalist country uh, that maybe the United States has always had at its heart somewhere, but it's trying to make this uh, what previously had been a more pluralistic country at its greatest aspirations into this puritanical country. And I think what we're trying to, we're seeing here is sort of the different faces of the United States are finally kind of becoming part of this imagery. It's the puritanic uh, hell and fury country that maybe was at its founding and that's racist, built on slavery, also combating with this sort of country that is coming out of the Enlightenment that has this concept of liberty and maybe pluralism of some sort. And I think right now those two different faces of the United States are really really going to be having a go at it. And I don't see it ending anytime soon. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's always wonderful to get your insights. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
And that was Jebediah with Tracksuit, while Sean Mulcahy is a board member of the Victorian Pride Lobby, and we chatted this week. Thank you so much for having me on. What do we know about the Victorian government's plans for hate crimes legislation? Well, we know a couple of key things so far. The first is that the government's committed to extend our state's hate uh, speech legislation to cover sex, gender identity, sexual orientation and HIV or AIDS status. So this will mean that LGBTIQA plus people and people living with HIV AIDS are protected from hate speech. And basically everyone should be able to participate in the community without a fear of attack. Um, We also know that the government's committed to better protecting LGBTIQ plus students, teachers and staff from discrimination um, and ensuring that they can't be uh, expelled from school, fired from work on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity and also to protect people on the basis of their sex characteristics because nobody should face discrimination or expulsion or the sack simply because they're LGBTIQ plus. So the government's really going to tighten up those religious exemptions? Yes, yes. That's one thing that um, that government has committed to do in response to the Legal and Social Issues Committee's report into anti-vilification laws. What do we know about how the government will define hate speech? Well, at the moment, uh, the threshold for hate speech is quite high. And what we do know what from what the government has committed, they're going to look at um, lowering the threshold to make civil and criminal vilification easier to prove so that um, people who are subjected to vilification are able to get better justice through our court system. What do we know about the government's timeline to enact this legislation? So the government's committed to introducing legislation to ban the public display of Nazi symbols in the first half of next year. And this is important not only for the Jewish community, but also for our communities as well, too. We were targeted by Nazis, and I think it's extremely important that we stand in solidarity with Jewish communities against the display of these uh, neo-Nazi symbols that incite hate behaviour. As to the other portion of work, so addressing our anti-vilification laws, uh, there's a less clear time frame on that. And one of the things that we'll be doing is pressing the government to ensure that this is addressed as soon as possible. Nobody should have to suffer a, a day more of hate. Can we expect this before the next state election, do you think, in November next year? Look, to be honest, I think that might be a bit ambitious at this stage, but my message to the government would be to go ahead and do the work now. We've got a prime opportunity in the Upper House to get this legislation through. We've got supportive crossbenchers, many of whom, for example, Fiona Patton, have led the charge on this legislation. So now is the optimal time to be moving on it. But, of course, there needs to be community consultation to ensure that the laws are as strong as possible too. So there's that kind of balance Act, the government will have to do the need to legislate to stop hate, but also the need to ensure that there's adequate community consultation to ensure that the laws are as strong as possible. Has the Victorian opposition responded to these policy positions and plans from the government? Have they laid bare their policy hand, their political hand? Well, very pleasingly, the report from the Legislative 
Council's Legal and Social Issues Committee, sorry, the Legislative Assembly's Legal and Social Issues Committee, was a bipartisan or multi-partisan report. So all of the recommendations were supported by both government and opposition MPs. So that's a really good sign that there is cross-party support for this legislation. We've seen um, the now Deputy Leader of the Opposition come out in strong support of the ban on Nazi symbols. So I'm very confident that that will get through. Uh, But we need the opposition to uh, stick with the recommendations in the report and support legislation to address hate. Are you concerned more broadly that we might see a lurch to the right on LGBTIQ policy under a Victorian opposition led by Matthew Guy, the new leader? Well, Uh, Time will tell, I suppose, but uh, in the past, Matthew's been supportive of LGBTIQ plus rights and uh, we've got a very good working relationship with the Shadow Minister for Equality, Bridget Valance. We know there's, well, there is going to be a reshuffle of the Shadow Ministry, but we'd be very keen to ensure that the equality portfolio is kept and that the opposition uh, continues to support LGBTIQA plus law reform. Of course, the Victorian Pride Lobby has spoken out about the low numbers of LGBTIQ MPs in Victoria's Parliament. Of course, Neil Farrow has been campaigning strongly on that issue. Uh, What are your thoughts on the matter? Well, I actually wrote an op-ed in the Star Observer together with Neil and our lobby co-convener, Nevena Sporovska, calling on political parties to step up and take action to increase the number of LGBTIQA plus representatives in our parliament. And when you look at the Victorian parliament compared to other parliaments, we're vastly underrepresented and we don't have a parliament that represents the diversity of the community. We should have more LGBTIQA plus MPs. So political parties have a role to play in that, whether that's through uh, soft work like uh, identifying LGBTIQA plus leaders within their political parties and supporting them through mentoring and networking and skill sharing opportunities to step up and stand for parliament through to the hard work of considering issues like whether there should be uh, quotas or at the very least targets for the number of LGBTIQA plus candidates standing and winning seats in Parliament. Do we know how many queer MPs there are in Victoria's Parliament who are out? Uh, Well, we do, yes. We've got two at the moment, and that's not nearly enough. Uh, We don't have any trans uh, or openly trans or intersex MPs either, so there's still that um, massive underrepresentation to address. And the reality is, is we've got one of the Parliament's We've got a parliament that has one of the lowest representations of our community in it, and it shouldn't be that way. We're the equality state. We can do better than that. Are you of the view that it's desirable for the Minister for LGBTIQ Communities to be someone from the queer community? Well, we've had the situation where both the Minister and Shadow and the Green spokesperson have all been uh, fantastic allies, though not members of our community. I think they are all doing a wonderful job, but I think it would be good to have more LGBTIQA plus people in our ministry and in our shadow ministry, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they need to hold the LGBTIQA plus portfolio, but I'd love to see um, a shadow treasurer that's um, from our communities. I'd love to see, you know, a Minister for Public Transport that's from our communities. I'd love to see a Premier from our communities as well too, if that's not too much to hope for. 
It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the Andrews government touts itself on being very progressive, and indeed it has been on LGBTIQ issues, yet the numbers of queer MPs within their parliamentary ranks is very low. Why do you think that is? I wish I knew what the exact answer was so that I could go and snap my fingers and fix that problem. But the lobby has done a a lot of work on this. We've recently released a report called Breaking the Rainbow Ceiling that looked at lesbian, bi and queer women's experiences when it comes to considering standing for, for standing and for winning um, seats in our councils and our parliaments. And it was pretty clear that um, there was a number of barriers to break down, but also a number of motivators to pivot off. And I would really encourage all parties to have a look at our report, um, to engage with it, and to put in place mechanisms to increase LGBTIQA plus representation. It's not enough to say, oh, we want to see more LGBTIQA plus people in our parliaments. Political parties need to do the work to get us there. You're listening to an interview with Sean Mulcahy from the Victorian Pride Lobby on 3CRs in your face. Of course, you live in Ballarat in regional Victoria. I guess you really see the need for queer representation within our parliament of, of queer people from regional Victoria. And it's a really pleasing sign that at the last local government elections, we elected a number of LGBTIQA plus people across the entire state in uh, our inner city areas, in our suburban areas, in regional and in rural areas as well too. We need to break down this uh, harmful stereotype that suggests that people in regional and rural areas are less inclusive. In fact, where I live in Ballarat, we had one of the highest percentages of support for marriage equality of anywhere in the nation. We know that our communities uh, are supportive and we need to have people in our parliaments that reflect that. And I will um, give a shout out to our openly bi mayor of Ballarat, who's been a fantastic champion of LGBTIQA plus inclusion across our rural, uh, our, our regional city here. You're a fantastic advocate for queer people in regional areas and indeed across the state. Any chance of you running for local government or state or federal parliament? <laughs> um a quick Google will uh, show that I did uh, some time ago put my hand up for Parliament in an extremely unwinnable seat, uh, and it was a good experience. And what I would say to people is uh, don't be intimidated, give it a go, but make sure you've got that support network around you. Reach out to your friends, families, reach out to political colleagues, and don't be afraid to say that you need help and that you need support. Find those mentors and people that can support you to stand and give it a go. It's a really rewarding experience to be able to engage with your community on the issues that they're passionate about. And if you're elected, just look at the fantastic work our LGBTIQA plus councillors are doing across the state, not only on LGBTIQA plus inclusion initiatives like flying the rainbow flag or the trans flag or the intersex flag or the aromantic flag. Era was the first council, I believe, in the world to go that far as to fly that. Um, but also on other big community issues as well too. Our LGBTIQA plus councillors are really delivering for their communities and we need more. But any chance though of you running again? I mean, you're very passionate about queer representation in Parliament. Oh, look, I, I want, I'm not going to rule anything in or out, but for me, I 
get so much more reward from seeing other people uh, elected and seeing other people winning. And I will um, say what we particularly need to see is more trans and intersex people standing and elected to our councils and our parliaments, particularly with the uh, media focus around trans issues at the moment. Having trans people in political life can help change and reform the laws that are so often a barrier to inclusion. You sound like you'd be a great uh, political mentor. Have you been mentoring any prospective candidates? Uh, well, the uh, Victorian Pride Lobby runs the Rainbow Local Government campaign and at the moment um, in the non-election period we're working with councillors across the states to support LGBTIQA plus inclusion initiatives in their local council chambers. But come local government elections, we will be out there supporting LGBTIQA plus candidates to stand and get elected um, through mentoring, through skill sharing and the like. I mean, it's all done on the smell of an oily rag, but uh, I'm always happy to support LGBTIQA plus people to stand and get elected to our our council chambers and our parliaments. Even though the Andrews government has been a huge supporter of the queer community, I'm sure there are some legislative gaps that still need to be uh, fixed. What are your thoughts on some other legislative reforms that the Andrews government needs to make? Well, you touched on one before, and that's religious exemptions. We need to get rid of them. It's just ridiculous, the fact that a queer kid could still be expelled from school in 2021 just for coming out. That's so antithetical to everything that this um, progressive Labor government is supportive of and we need to update our laws to get rid of these old outdated exemptions. The other key area, of course, is the one that we touched on before, which is uh, addressing anti-vilification laws and addressing hate speech. But also important to that is addressing hate crimes as well too. Um, The... Legal and Social Issues Committee also said that we need to have a look at into that issue as well too because there's a vast under-reporting of hate crimes in Victoria and there's also an under-prosecution of them as well too. So there's more work that needs to be done in that space to ensure that uh, everyone is able to participate in the community without fear of attack or um, vilification. What are your thoughts on the federal government's looming return of the religious discrimination bill? Are you concerned that the uh, new version could, in fact, seek to override progressive states' uh, protection uh, around discrimination for queer communities? I think that is a real concern, um, and I think we need to uh, ensure that it doesn't do that. And if it does, we need to gather together and get the support to block that legislation. But it's also important that we not delay reforms at the state level because we're waiting for a religious discrimination bill to come. Uh, And we've heard that argument before that uh, governments at the state or territory level are going to wait off and see how this will pan out. But this has been going on forever, it feels like. And I think there's a real opportunity for states and territory governments to show leadership and to progress law reforms to address religious exemptions in our anti-discrimination laws, those loopholes that allow LGBT plus people to be discriminated against and not just wait and see what the federal government's going to do.
So, Sean, tell us a bit about yourself. I find it fascinating that you've got a Doctor of Laws and you specialise in uh, the law around the performing arts. Tell us a bit more about that area of expertise. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do have a doctorate in laws and my research was looking at performance in court proceedings. So I was interested in uh, what my background in theatre and performance can bring to bear on what we do in courts and the way that we speak, the way that we move, the way that... Uh, we act in court proceedings. Fascinating. Well, tell us a bit more about what your key findings were. Well, I think uh, the reality is, uh, and anyone who's watched uh, Question Time at Parliament can tell you, or anyone who's been to a court proceeding can tell you, it's just as much about uh, how it's said as what is said, which is to say that the performance really matters to how we do things in law and politics. Absolutely. Sean Mulcahy, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for all your your fantastic work in highlighting issues of importance to our LGBTIQA plus communities. 
Man, that was Patty Smith with Midnight Rider. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. Um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face, taking us as The Cure, Love Song.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.